0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Todd Lawson on January 9, 2017. Todd is Professor Emeritus of Islamic Thought at the University of Toronto. Todd has published numerous articles and books on the relationship between the Baha'i faith and Islam. Todd's most recent publication is a large two-volume reference collection on Islamic eschatology entitled Roads to Paradise, which he edited with his colleague Sebastian Gunther. Chair of Arabic and Islamic Studies at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Todd is now finishing a new book on the Bab's earliest writings and a book on the Quran. Two volumes on the writings of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, a collection of previously published material newly edited and revised, will be published early in 2018. We talk about who the Bab was in the interview. I started the interview by asking Todd where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? To the degree that I'm grown
1: up, <laughs> it, it began in uh, southern Indiana in uh, 1948. I was there until early 1968. So I went to school there. And I started uh, university there, but then I left January of 68, sort of a Rural uh, society, although we were not farmers, we lived in a small town. It was uh, about 25,000 people, a place called Columbus, Indiana. I think that I developed very early on a strong desire to travel and see other parts of the world. That seems to be a pretty solid memory. Southern Indiana at that time was... uh, very close to the old traditional ways of, of living. It was largely a Protestant town. although There was a Catholic church. There was a very tiny Jewish community. There was no Jewish temple or synagogue. There was a very small number of people who identified as Jews. There was a, a significant black population. And it seemed To me, to be a very stratified society and sort of teeming with racial prejudice and religious prejudice and uh, materialism and uh, all of the things that, when I ultimately encountered the Baha'i Faith, I thought, this sounds like something that we should all be involved with. It would be a great help. My religious life was sort of a mix. We were members of the Methodist church. My grandfather was from that small number of Jewish families that lived in the area. So our situation was a bit different than most of the people there. My aunts and grandmother were born into the, I guess, Methodist church, or at least Protestantism. And they were very active and very, very devout members of the church. But my own parents were not quite so enthusiastic. My father was not interested in religion at all. And my mother was, I think, more attracted to the Jewishness of her father than she was to the Protestantism of her mother. But we did go to church. I went to Sunday school. Uh, Jesus was, especially by my grandmother and my aunts, mentioned a lot and we uh, were told stories about the life of Jesus and Bible stories and so on and it was a very powerful series of stories that uh, I heard and when I would go to church which it wasn't all that often because my parents didn't go I would be conscious of the, these stories of, about Jesus and of course Moses and the Old Testament as it was known to everyone in those days. And it struck me as very important, although I was also not terribly attracted to the church life that I experienced as a kid. It didn't strike me as providing the answers. I think one of the reasons this was so is because there were no black people in the church. And I had friends at school who were black, and I had a babysitter from a very early age who was black and these people just seemed to be completely invisible as far as the church was concerned and I thought this seems to be something of a what flaw or oversight or uh, perhaps hypocrisy even. Why is it all white? I remember mm. having these thoughts,
2: yeah.
0: And you carried this feeling of the importance of Jesus from the stories that you took from your childhood and I guess did you take that on into young adulthood?
1: And old adulthood! I mean, <laughs>
0: still,
1: the longer I live, the more interesting and compelling and essential the life of Jesus and of course by extension and as a Baha'i we think it's the same about all manifestations of God or, or prophets of God, divine messengers. But yes, I, I begin to define from this vantage point or begin to appreciate the degree to which I was impressed by and attached to the stories of Jesus and Jesus as a, a, a son of God, the one who uh, would go after the stray sheep and leave all of the others on their own because the stray sheep was the most important. This was a very powerful story from the time I heard it. It was very beautiful and uh, very hopeful, obviously.
0: When was it that you ran into the Baha'i faith, and how did that happen?
1: The first encounter I had with the Baha'i faith was in Wilmette, driving around uh, and seeing the temple, and you know the magnificent building in Wilmette, and it was very, very beautiful, and so on.
0: So maybe I'll just explain to folks listening that in Wilmette, Illinois, there is a Baha'i house of worship, and it's really the only one in North America at this time, and it's significant to the Baha'is. So you were in Wilmette, and you happened to see it.
1: Yes, I was in college by this time, and it was about an hour and a half from Chicago, and some friends and I decided to go to Chicago for the weekend, and somebody said, oh, have you seen the Baha'i Temple? It's really beautiful. We should go look at it. So we drove out to Wilmette and Indeed, it was there. And it was very beautiful. And I was very happy we saw it. Oh, I said, who are the Baha'is? And I think somebody said, oh, they're those people who think that all humanity is one. That was my first <laughs> introduction to the Baha'i faith. And I said, oh, that's great. But I certainly wasn't interested in religion at the time. I had been turned off, I think, by religion through my experience of institutional Christianity. This is a very familiar story, of course. So I was not interested in religion as such. And so I just filed it away. And then, however, it became necessary for me to leave the United States because of the Vietnam War. I was too afraid to go into the army or to serve in the military, I was going to avoid it at all costs. I was losing my educational deferment because I wasn't doing very well in school because it was a very intense time. In some ways, it was a very hopeless time. There seemed to be no rhyme or reason to anything. We certainly didn't know why we were in Vietnam. Nobody could explain this to any of us. And it was a frightening prospect. You know, I didn't want to be shot at. I didn't want to shoot at anyone. So I began to snoop around and see what the possibilities were. And the most realistic one for me seemed to be to go to Canada. And I had some friends there at the the university who were Canadian. They said, oh, well, if you're going to Canada, go to Toronto. I have a brother there. He will help you get settled. So that's was very appealing, and he said, oh, by the way, he is a a Baha'i. And then his brother, he says, you know, the Baha'is are those people who think that the world should all be united, and so on. I said, yeah, yes, okay, very well. But anyway, I got the guy's name and address, and when I did go, finally go to Canada, left home, I looked him up, and he uh, helped me out. He was a great guy. You know, the Baha'is are not politically engaged. In the normal sense of the term, there was no particular Baha'i stance for or against the war, as far as I can tell. And Baha'is are discouraged from being active in partisan politics. But he was an extremely sympathetic human being. He knew I was a young guy but I have just turned 19, I guess. I had assumed that I would never be able to go back to my home again as long as I lived. I didn't know a soul in Canada. I was all by myself. He sort of befriended me and showed me around. He was an extremely impressive uh, young man. That, in fact, was my first real introduction to the Baha'i teachings. I was very impressed by him, and this made me more interested in what the Baha'i faith was actually all about.
0: So once you ran into it, what was it that actually caused you to accept it?
1: I was so impressed by him. It was, he was such a very kind person, and he was uh, super humble and generous with his time and care. And it was just unusual. I think some of what I was uh, impressed by him with had also to do with the cultural differences between Toronto and my home. You see, Mm. for me, everything I encountered after encountering him and learning about this new uh, movement or new religion, everything seemed to be Baha'i. For example, one of the things that I noticed that everybody had in Toronto were these electric water kettles, which I had never seen before in my life. Mm -hmm. You plug it in and it heats the water and then you make tea or instant coffee or something. Well, because all the people I knew were Baha'is, I thought this was some sort of cultic implement that everybody, all Baha'is had in their houses. So that's a sort of an absurd example of how I was trying to read my new situation. I had a hard time understanding exactly what was Baha'i and what was just Canadian and different. Right. But it came to pass, not to sound too biblical that I started to meet other people who were associated with the Baha'i faith, members of the Baha'i community. And some of these were also very impressive individuals. And then I started to actually read some of the works that the founders of the Baha'i religion wrote. This was, I think, what actually caused me to take it very seriously the the Baha'i message. For me, it was far too easy to say this is a absurd. Prophets don't come to Earth anymore. This is an outmoded way of thinking about the way culture changes and civilization changes and grows and so forth. Just on the face of it, we can't accept it. And I thought that may be true. But the point is, it also may be true that what the Baha'is are claiming, that a message from God, whoever that may be, however one might construe that, has come to humanity in a form which communicates to everyone at the same time. And that the return of Jesus is somehow to be identified with this event. On the one hand, it's very fantastic. And from a purely rationalistic or scientific point of view, it's highly unlikely. But on the other hand, it ain't impossible. And I, T. Lawson, do not know enough to be able to say whether this is just completely wrong right out of the box. So I began to give it. The benefit of the doubt. And I suppose I have continued to give it the benefit of the doubt ever since. Even if it is proven to have been historically wrong and all the rest of it, it still remains that the Baha'i message is that which would do a great deal of good if everyone adopted it, if people put it into practice. So therefore, how wrong can it really be? This was the other way of thinking about it. In short, I sort of adopted the position that you find articulated in the Baha'i Writings over and over and over again, that is, is the abolition of prejudice of all kinds really something that the world does not need? So it is a kind of a religious faith that keeps one at it throughout all the years, but ultimately, as the prophets themselves have said over and over, if these things were susceptible of rational proof, then they would not have the power and the value that they do have. There is a virtue, if you like, an existential or spiritual virtue connected with the idea that you can not have what we would call scientific proof to demonstrate the utter and irrefutable veracity of the claims of a religion. The religion comes to life when people go for it with their hearts and minds, and try and follow the teachings, even if there is no proof. In other words, religious truth says that there is a reality that is beyond our senses, that we must connect with through ways that are not sensory. And this also includes, in some sense, the intellect, the reason. So if it was possible to prove the existence of God, the idea of God would be much less important and valuable, you see. This at least was how I approached all of this. So I thought, well, let us Go along with this. It sounds better than anything else I've ever heard. Certainly it would appear far-fetched to to skeptics and all the rest of it. But as I said, it's very easy to be skeptical about something as grand as the Baha'i claim and the Baha'i message.
0: At some point then, would you say you took it on faith that this message you needed to accept and take it with you going forward in your life?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's mm. what happened ultimately. About six months after I heard about it, mm-hmm. I thought, well, this is something that I need to commit to. It's not sufficient to say, that oh, Baha'i Faith is out there and it's, it's great and it's good for other people <laughs> to do. You have to throw in your lot with it. This is how it seemed to me. And I'll be very honest about this. One of the things that that attracted me and may have had more influence on me than I now am able to, to measure, is the Islamicness of the Baha'i faith. Because, you know, growing up in southern Indiana, the years that I did, we heard nothing about Islam at all, ever, in high school and or even in college. It was never mentioned, even in world history courses. I mean, it just didn't come up. Muhammad was an unknown figure. And with the Baha'i faith, I got this story about Muhammad, who was a kind of a Jesus in a different form, and billions of people believed it. You know, the Quran is this magnificent book. Bahá'u'lláh refers to it over, it quotes it. If you took the Quran out of the Baha'i writings, they would be, Uh, be a much smaller corpus. The Baha'i Faith quotes the Quran over and over again. And many of the topics that are talked about are Quranic subjects or Islamic subjects. The Baha'i Faith may be thought of as an interpretation of Islam or universalizing of Islam beyond its original territory, if you like. I mean, of course, there are a lot of doctrinal, I suppose, differences between the Baha'i faith in Islam, but there are also a lot of similarities, and there's a great deal of agreement between the Baha'i teachings and the Islamic teachings. And this I found fascinating, because I had simply never or known anything at all about Islam until this time. And the way Baha'u'llah wrote about Muhammad and the Qur'an, and the way Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, spoke about these things. Very powerful, and it was obvious that they were deeply in love with the great Islamic achievements and the central figures of the Islamic religion and so on, and especially the Qur'an. So this opened up a whole new territory for me. I found it very exciting.
0: How would you say becoming a Baha'i might have changed the direction in which you were going in your life?
1: Oh, very simple, I was uh, I had no direction at all, and this also may have been one of its appeals to me. It offered some kind of direction. You know, the other thing about the Baha'i Faith is that it makes sense out of history in very compelling terms. It makes sense out of being in the world, why we are here, why we are born, why we die, and most importantly, as is the case with other religions baha'i teachings and religious teachings in general give you an understanding of why you may be suffering at any particular time right so it gives meaning to life and i may have found this similar degree of meaning in other religions if i had paid the same kind of attention to them that i was paying to the baha'i faith but for whatever reason I was in a position to be focusing on the Baha'i faith. I think part of it was its newness, that I had not heard of it before. I was in a new country, and I was starting a new life, as it were. I had met these people who were very different from my friends and acquaintances back home. It was all very uh, interesting and new. So the idea that the Baha'i faith had a gospel of historical development I think was a big part of my attraction to it. And then, of course, when I started studying Islam, which I did quite intensely, I discovered that the Baha'i understanding of history is extremely Islamic in its basic content and structure. But I didn't know it at that time. So this is another one of those areas in which the Baha'i faith and Islam are very, very similar. The Baha'i faith derives a great deal of its ethos from the Islamic uh, precedent.
0: I did a little research online and was directed to the Baha'i library, the online Baha'i library, and I noticed you've written quite a bit on various topics related to the Baha'i faith. And I'm wondering, when did you start writing about the Baha'i faith?
1: I started writing about the Baha'i faith during my graduate work in Islamic studies, the Baha'i faith it sees itself as coming out of two separate related movements. The early period is referred to as the Babi period, and this word Babi comes from the title of a religious figure who Baha'is believe, prophesied the coming of Baha'u'llah, who is the founder proper of the Baha'i faith. For my PhD work, I wanted to study the writings of that earlier figure, the Bab. And so that's when I first started doing research on things connected with the Baha'i faith. But one of the things that I found really attractive about working on the writings of the Bab, this word Bab means door in Arabic, and it was a honorific title that he adopted and by which he is known, both by his followers, sympathizers, and also by his enemies. Everyone recognizes who the Bab is. The idea of door refers to many, many different things. But the main reading of it from the Baha'i point of view is that the Bab was a door to a further Measure of divine revelation that would be associated with the name of Baha'u'llah. The Bab was also an extremely prolific author and wrote millions of words of what are recognized by the Baha'i faith as revelation. When I be, became involved with the Baha'i community and I started identifying as a Baha'i, Everyone would be talking about the Bab and Baha'u'llah and so forth. And we had all of these writings from Baha'u'llah and his son, Abdul Baha, and his grandson, Shoghi Effendi, and the House of Justice, and all of these central authorities. I would ask people, you know, especially Persian Baha'is, Iranian Baha'is, why don't we have anything from the Bab? We had have, we have one or two very short prayers, that was it. Since then, there's been some other things published, but in those days there was nothing. So I would say, Well what did he teach? Or what was it all about? and all the rest of it. And people would say things like, His writing is very, very deep and very complicated and nobody could understand it. And that was the wrong thing to say to me because of <laughs> being so arrogant, of course Well, I will look at this and I'll you know, we'll we'll sort this out and I'll find out for myself what he's talking about. So that's how it started.
0: Todd, maybe before you continue, we could give folks a context because the Bob is really quite a messianic figure who appeared about the same time that the Christians in the United States were in a flurry about expecting the return of Christ. The Bob's life was very similar and resembled quite a bit the life of Christ and I'm wondering if you could explain briefly the life of the Bob and how it paralleled the life of Jesus
1: from what we know about his life he was a very gentle uh, soul very loving very kind and very compassionate towards all people in general as far as we know from a very young age In fact, there are stories that are told about his childhood that parallels certain stories told about Jesus, how he was unusually intelligent, how he would know the answers to things that his teachers did not know. And you find these kinds of stories in every religious tradition. The idea is that we're dealing here with a person who's been touched by God. The Messianic aspect of the Bab's life has very much to do with the historical moment into which he was born and his culture, the religion that permeated his culture. He was born in Iran, and Iran, since the beginning of the 16th century, had been consolidating a new identity. New, that is to say, in comparison with its earlier history, in which it was uh, had a different identity. But from the 16th century forward, it acquired the Shi'i religion. Uh, you know that in, in Islam, there are two major types of being Muslim, two major ways of, of being Islamic. One is referred to as Sunni Islam, Sunni Islam is the Islam of by far the majority of Muslims. And then there is Shi'i Islam. We now hear about this from time to time in the news because of the various uh, events that are happening all over the world, many of them pretty depressing. But in any case, the smaller division of Islam is known as Shi'i Islam. Iran is almost all Shi'i. And so people who are born in Iran are automatically identified as part of this Shi'i culture, and many of them are devout Shi'i Muslims, probably the majority. I don't don't know what the statistics are. But in any case, the Bab was a Shi'i Muslim, his parents were Shi'i, his culture was Shi'i. And one of the things that distinguishes Shi'ism from Sunni Islam is the emergence from hiding of a a major Messianic religious leader known in the Shi'i literature as the hidden leader or the hidden Imam. The Bab lived at a time when expectations were extremely intense that this leader was going to make himself known or visible. The Báb, in his earliest writings, contemplated the eventual appearance of this hidden Imam, and as he began to write more and be more involved with this Messianic expectation, he himself made clear in his writings that he was this person. So the messianism is culturally determined from one point of view. It speaks to the expectations of his society and his culture. From another point of view, I happen to be able to speak about this. His writings are also absolutely impassioned by this attachment to this hidden religious figure whose expectation and appearance is just about to happen. That's in the earliest work. In the later work, of course, it is happening. And he himself speaks with the voice of this hidden, heretofore hidden but now apparent religious figure.
0: There is a title associated with that figure, right, Todd? Ka'em. Yeah.
1: Yes. Q-A apostrophe
0: I-M. This is uh
1: one of the many titles that this figure has in the literature means someone who rises up and takes charge as it were
0: and was expected by these Shia adherents
1: That's right absolutely yeah the whole purpose of Shiism is to contemplate the absence of their leader because Shiism was always a, a minority it suffered From time to time, not always, not steadily and not without breaks, but there were times when the Shi'i community was intensely persecuted by the majoritarian community. And so the idea that their true leader was going to return and save them from this persecution was a very powerful one in their literature.
0: So what was the reaction to the populace when... The Bob made this declaration that he was that promised Hayim.
1: Uh, the populace, we don't really know. But the people who were in charge of the religion and the people who were in charge of the machinery of state, if you like, were from the very beginning completely against the idea that the Bob could be this or this uh, return of the hidden Imam. He himself was imprisoned and ultimately another area of his life parallels that he was put to death by the combined forces of the clergy and the government in Tabriz in 1850. After only six years of, if you like, being the head of this messianic religious movement, they put him in front of a firing squad and
0: killed him. And so this mission was only six years in duration, but you said he had written volumes and volumes oh, and volumes of writing. It's just
1: incredible. Absolutely incredible. One of the reasons that we don't have a, a lot of the Bob's writings available I and mean, in translation and so forth, and that they're out there waiting for people to be interested in them and to work on them, they're not hidden. Many of the great libraries of Europe and North America have reams of the Babs' writings in manuscript form that anybody with proper credentials, academic credentials, can ask to borrow and look at and read. A lot of it is online now in Arabic and Persian. People can download it and read it. But one of the reasons that the Baha'i community has not published more than it has is because Baha'u'llah also wrote a great deal. And Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, who was the second leader of the Baha'i faith, in historical sequence, the Báb is the first founder of the Baha'i faith, in a sense. But he didn't call it the Baha'i faith. But the Baha'is see the Báb as the forerunner of the Baha'i faith. That founder of the Baha'i faith is Baha'u'lláh. And Baha'u'lláh appointed his son to be his successor. His successor, whose name is Abdu'l-Bahá, said that the Bob's writings should be published and edited and brought out for general consumption. Well, he said after the Book of Laws of Baha'u'llah were published and translated and so forth. That was, from his side, this ruling. There are thousands of pages of, of the Bob's writings.
0: So to give some perspective on the passing of what the Baha'is call the covenant in order to keep the the Baha'i faith unified. The Bab and Baha'u'llah are considered these messengers or manifestations of God, whereas Abdu'l-Baha merely considered himself a servant of Baha'u'llah. And his mission was to be the one to turn to for interpretation of his father's teachings but was not a revelator in his own right
1: that is the uh, official understanding of things that's very true in the early days when people were not so sure about all of these things it's clear when people from the west encountered Abdu'l-Bahá they were deeply attracted to him and many of them speak of him as if he were sort of a Christ-like figure as well Abul Baha was irresistible, apparently, and his writing, of course, is very beautiful. And it was, for the uninitiated, it would have been virtually impossible for them to tell the difference between, you know, whether he was a manifestation or just simply the the center of the covenant. But the official Baha'i position is that Bahá'u'lláh is the manifestation of God, and it and is through Bahá'u'lláh that revelation occurs. The Bab was also a manifestation of God and produced, if you like, revelation or was a conduit for revelation. And Abdu'l-Bahá's writings are not considered revelatory in that sense. But I myself am not really able to speak about that in a way that would be helpful to anyone because I think what we're dealing with here is a phenomenon that is... Varying by degrees of intensity and not really degrees in kind. Now, one area in which it is clear that Baha'u'llah's status is utterly different and, if you like, superior to Abdu'l-Baha'u'llah's is that Baha'u'llah's revelation includes the laws and ordinances for the society of Baha'is and society in general. Abdu'l-Bahá did not, as far as I know, compose laws as such. So that's a very real difference. But Abdu'l-Bahá's prayers are a large part of the Baha'i prayer book, and they are extremely beautiful and powerful and inspirational and all the rest of it. So it becomes a little bit difficult to speak about it with absolute certitude and categorically. The position, as you stated, is correct. The Baha'i faith does not call Abdu'l-Baha a manifestation of God. Rather, he's called the center of the covenant. There are only two manifestations of God connected with the Baha'i revelation. One is the Ba'b and one is Baha'u'llah.
0: You have written also about another historical figure that arose during the same time as the Ba'b, who actually um, was a follower of the Ba'b. And she was one of the Bob's first of 18 disciples. Maybe you could speak about her a little bit, of who I'm referring to.
1: Yes. You're referring, of course, to the woman, Babi, leader, who's known as Tahere. This was a title that was given to her by which she is most widely known. She was a devoted follower of the the Báb. She also produced writings of her own, uh, poetry and doctrinal works, and translated some of the Báb's Arabic writings into Persian. She was a traveling preacher for the Babi movement. The Báb gave birth to a movement around which united numerous types of people, some of them even from the clerical class, And from governmental classes but also other people who were not quite so highly placed because he spoke about a new era that was dawning for Iran and for the Shi'i Muslims. She was very caught up in this and she traveled and taught in salons and also in big meetings preaching the arrival of this new message. She paid for this with her life, ultimately, was uh, executed by clergy and government officials, again, who saw that she was becoming a little too influential because she was extremely eloquent. She was a compelling figure. One, because she was a woman. Why this is, is because she Islam has always recognized very important and sacred role for a woman in the household of the prophet by the name of Fatima. In the general imaginary of the Babis and their audiences, just as the hidden imam had come out of hiding and returned, so had Fatima come out of the spiritual world and come back to earth in a sense.
0: Now, Fatima was the daughter of Muhammad?
1: That's right. The daughter of Muhammad and the wife of the first imam of the Shia, Ali, and the mother of the second and third imams, Hassan and Hussein. And, you know, Hussein, of course, is in some sense the, the most important of the imams, although it's hard, again, to speak in such terms because he's the one whose martyrdom is observed every year in the Shi'i world, not just in the Shi'i world, all Muslims are heartbroken by the, about this tragedy that happened in Karbala in 680, I think it was, when the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad was murdered by people who considered themselves to be Muslims. You see, this is a huge, huge catastrophe in the history of Islam and in the way in which Islam understands itself. Because, you know, it represents a time when the unity of the Islamic world, which was the most sacred ideal for Islam, was forever broken, in a sense. So Fatima is the mother of Hassan and Hussein, and she herself was an important figure in the life of Muhammad. She was frequently, it fell to her, to console and help her father during times of persecution, which he suffered a great deal of to such an extent that she's called in the literature, Umm Abiha, which means the mother of her father, because she took such solicitous care of the Prophet, such loving care, and was married, of course, to the Prophet's cousin Ali, who was extremely close. So when Tahere emerges in this new Babi movement, Incidentally, her given name was actually Fatima to begin with, and Tahereh was also a nickname of the earlier Fatima. You see that the identities are, are melded together, and this was an extremely powerful, if you like, sacred performance. And the authorities rightly saw that it would be a very persuasive phenomenon and got rid of her as soon as possible.
0: She really pushed the envelope of the role of women at that time, did she not?
1: Absolutely true to say that she was a very unusual player in the religious culture of Shi'i Islam. You cannot say that there were no women involved. This is wrong to say. But she was a very outspoken and very active one. She indeed... Represented new horizons for women. I don't think women's rights and women's liberation was part of her her personal agenda. I think it was more symbolic in the way that she worked, in the way that she saw herself as part of this. Well, you met you yourself mentioned that she was one of the 18 first followers of the Bob. In actual fact, the Bob himself said that these. 18 represent the spiritual return of the 12 imams and a few other figures of early Shi'ism. So he himself endorsed the idea that she is the spiritual return of Fatima. This alone is powerful enough. It would be anachronistic, I think, to speak about women's rights at this stage. She was extremely vocal There's no doubt that she was a woman. In one of the primary historical texts for the rise and development of Bahai Hayden, she's quoted as saying, you can kill me if you like, but you cannot stop the progress of women. That's very true. There's no doubt about that. But women's rights was not an issue on the table in those days, you see. That's all I wish to say.
0: What is your latest written work that you've done, Todd?
1: Well, the most recent publication is a joint publication that has been several years in the making. Is, it, was just, it just came out in November. Its focus is not directly on the Baha'i faith, no, not even indirectly on the Baha'i faith, but it has to do with an understanding of Islamic teachings about life after death. It's a two volume reference work that my colleague in uh, Germany and I have been working on for the last five years or so. And it was just published by Brill Publishers in Holland, a very prestigious publishing house in Islamic studies. And the idea of this project, part of the idea was to show that life after death in Islam, is an extremely rich and generative idea. So we have people from all over the world writing articles on different aspects of life after death. The title of the publication is called Roads to Paradise. So we have articles on the Quran. We have articles on how the philosophers speak about life after death, how artists depict a life after death, how storytellers talk about it, how modernist and somewhat secularized Islamic thinkers speak about these eschatological ideas. You know, it's about two volumes, adds up to about 1,300 pages, and it's a very rich collection. I have an article in there, which I guess qualifies as my own personal recent publication, exploring the apocalyptic energies of the Quran text. You know that the Qur'an is a really, almost inexplicably powerful text. Anyone who understands Arabic, and even people who don't, when they hear the Qur'an recited, are just dumbfounded and paralyzed by how beautiful and compelling it is, you see. This is something that was made clear to me when I first started studying Islam, and it sort of remained the centerpiece of my interest in Islam all these years. I'm still trying to understand exactly how this works. Because if you read the Qur'an in English, you quickly get really tired. and It seems tedious. You don't understand how it flows. jumps from one subject to the other. How is it that billions of people can consider this the most beautiful thing ever written? So my article is in the service of trying to understand this, write about it in English, so that people who are interested can get some sense for why the Qur'an is so beautiful and why Muslims are so deeply attached to it.
0: Is there a translation of the Qur'an that you would recommend, an English translation?
1: It's a very difficult question. My advice is to read as many translations as possible. Pick out something that you really like a surah, or a few verses that really speak to you somehow. And because now you can go online, for example, and you can go to a site where they have like 30 parallel English translations of the same verse. And you can read it, and you can do a little bit of algebra, and it gives you a much better sense that way. But having said that, there is a new translation by Alan Jones from Oxford that is very good. There is a very beautiful English translation from the mid-50s by Arthur Arbery. And there is an extremely important translation by Yusuf Ali from the late 20s and the 30s. Abdul Halim at the University of London has published a beautiful translation. There are lots of them. Uh, Marmaduke Pickthall is, is very good. Shoghi Finney liked Rodwell's translation, and it's a very beautiful translation indeed. Certainly for doctrinal or matters of faith and practice, it's not really possible to choose one that's more right over another one. I suppose the most beautiful English translation is the Arbery one, because Arberry was a very gifted translator of both Persian and Arabic poetry, and this gave him a great ability with translating the Quranic Arabic but there are still clunkers in it if you read it you'll see oh god you know this doesn't sound right i wish he'd done something a little different here you mm-hmm. see so you have to read a number of translations we have a lot of work to do you know we, what we should start doing is start teaching the Quran in schools in north america so people can grow up with it and understand that it is a an exceedingly important book for an awfully large part of humanity, and we need to start teaching about the heroism of the Prophet and the, and the Muslim heroes of the early period, so that we get another understanding. See, part of reading the Qur'an has to do with actually being attached to the Islamic history. If you're completely alienated by it, it doesn't matter how beautiful the translation is, you're still not going to be reading it the way it should be read.
0: Todd, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thanks again for asking me to be a part of this. It's a great project you have going on. I've dipped into it from time to time. Very interesting thing.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Todd Lawson, Professor Emeritus of Islamic Thought at the University of Toronto. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.